Actually, it's chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, just lift your hands, as always, and we will make sure that you get one so that you can follow along with us in our Bible study tonight. And we're actually in chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, I've got to give you two forewarnings, and I know that you hold your breath when you hear me say that. We might go just a touch. I don't know if we'll go long, but I will say this. It's going to be a full study. <laughs> and number two is that I'm, I'm going to bring to you tonight what the Bible calls the meat of the word. There's times when we have the milk of the word, very palatable, very easy to digest, easy to understand. And there are times when there are things that maybe are not quite so easy to understand. But here is my word to you. I know that there is not one person here that cannot fully understand the things that I'm going to share with you tonight. We all, how many here have kids? You know, a lot of hands go up. You know, us parents, we look at our kids sometimes and we know as parents that they have the ability to grasp the things that we're going to say to them, right? And that's the way I feel tonight, not like a parent, but but I know you can understand these things. So don't tune out. If, if things in for a moment seem a little bit too technical, don't shut down and say, oh, well, this doesn't apply to me. You'll be very glad if you just hang in there and stay tuned because this is great, great stuff. I promise you'll be blessed. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, last week in our study of the end of chapter 4, we crossed into the third segment of Paul's teaching or Paul's letter of instruction to the Thessalonians. That is, Paul began talking to them about their coming hope. And we started a discussion about the rapture of the church. That time that's coming when those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ and that are saved, they're bought by his blood, their sins are forgiven... Their names are written in the book of life. And they, those people are alive at the time of his return. The Bible teaches, Paul explained, that those of us that are alive and remain, that are saved at the time when the Lord comes, that we will be caught up, snatched away, literally, pulled by the shirt collar in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and that we will meet the Lord in the air and we will be taken to the place that he's prepared for us. And Paul described that to the Thessalonians in the second part of chapter 4. Now that wasn't something that Paul just dreamed up or something that he was hypothesizing about. Jesus spoke of it numerous times throughout the Gospels. Paul expanded upon it in the epistles. It's seen in the book of Revelation, and we know it to be true, that there is to be a rapture. Now, the question that remains in the heart and mind of those that hear a teaching like that, or those that were going through circumstances like the Thessalonians were, where they were suffering or afflicted, you know, or people that live in days like we live in, the question that remains after hearing a teaching about the rapture is when will the rapture take place? When is the rapture going to be? Now, we know that no man knows the day or the hour. Jesus made that perfectly clear, that there's no one that can say, well, I know the day or I know the time or I know when it will be. We know that. However, if that were the end of the story, that, hey, no one knows the day or the hour, and so therefore, 
Let's just not worry about it. Well, that would be inconsistent with what else Jesus said about this concept. Because he told us that we're to watch. He told us that we're to be aware. And he told us that we're to be ready. And so if there wasn't more to the story than just, hey, you can't know the day and the hour, so don't worry about it. The message would just be, don't worry about it. And we could go on to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. But there is more to the story. No, we don't know the day or the hour. We won't know the day or the hour. We can't know the day or the hour. But there is more that we can know than just to say, well, it doesn't matter. It could be today. It could be in 200 years. So let's just get on with our Christianity and we're not going to worry about it. And that's what Paul begins to take up as we get into uh, chapter 5 here, that there is more to know. Paul addresses this idea of when will the rapture happen. He answers the question that they, that they would have in their heart. So look at me, or with me, you are, I hope you're looking at me, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 5 and listen to what Paul says to them right after telling them about the rapture. He says this, He says, but of the times and the seasons. Now, there's a big difference between the day and the hour and the times and the seasons. One is very specific. One is more broad, more general. Same subject. He says, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Now, I find it interesting that Paul would say this to them here at this point, that he would say that you have no need that I write unto you. And I believe it's very calculated that there's a reason, that there's something that the Holy Ghost wants us to understand in hearing what Paul says to them here concerning this, that they have no need. You know by now that Paul spent less time in Thessalonica than he did in any of the other places where a church was planted because of his visit. He was only there for three weeks. And he didn't know that he was only going to be there for three weeks. He was cut short because of the persecution, because of the rioting that began, because of his presence there. His intent was to stay, but he had to go. And here's the point. That even though he was only there for three weeks, he found it to be so important of a truth Such a foundational concept that he made sure before he left that they were well versed and well understood, well taught concerning this concept of the second coming of Jesus Christ. In three weeks time, he made sure they understood the rapture. He made sure they understood the second coming, that they understood the resurrection and that they understood even the Antichrist. In in 2 Thessalonians, when Paul writes to them the second letter, he's talking about the Antichrist in chapter 2. And he says there in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you of these things? In other words, that part of what Paul grounded them in from the very beginning was this concept of the second coming. Let me suggest to you, that a key component in the spiritual health and blessing of the church in Thessalonica was the fact that they were given to a desire for Jesus to return and that they understood what the Bible had to say about it. 
We already know that they were a fruitful church. Paul said back in chapter 1, he said, From you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we don't even need to visit that region again. And so they were a fruitful church. And I believe that part of the reason why they were fruitful was this very thing, is that they were ready for, they were awaiting, they understood the Lord's return. It was an important thing to them. Some people say it's not important. We don't need to understand how that's all going to happen. We don't need to give ourselves to a study of prophecy or to understand how the sequence of events is going to unfold. It's just not important. Other people will say, well, I'm just not old enough in the Lord to really care about that. I haven't been walking with the Lord long enough. Or people will say, it's too difficult to understand. There's too many different things to try to put together, and and it's confusing, and sometimes people don't agree about it. So we're just going to ignore that topic. And that's not a wise thing to do. Let me give you a few facts about those that are well-versed in what the Bible teaches about the second coming of Jesus Christ. First of all, those people that give themselves to an understanding and to a watchfulness for the return of Jesus Christ are more likely to be in the perfect will of God for their lives than someone who is not. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, when you pray, and it was one of the first things, he said, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's just greeting. Then he said the first thing, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The precursor to praying God's will for your life is to examine it through the lens of the second coming of Christ or for the establishing of his kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And people that are looking for Jesus to return, that understand the times that they're living in and are ready to be taken, are more likely to be in the perfect will of God for their lives than those that say, it's not important or I'm just going to ignore it. The second thing is that people that understand these things, those that are watching for the return of the Lord, are less likely to be enslaved by sin. Paul wrote to Titus, one of the young pastors, and he talked about the glorious return of Christ. And he said, the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he said this, whoever has this hope purifies himself. And when you're expecting that the Lord will return at any time, you're not going to be giving yourselves to carnal living and sinful behaviors. And so, if you're a watcher, you're less likely to be enslaved in sin. Thirdly, you, if you are a watcher, if you understand Bible prophecy, you are a person that's going to have more faith in the Scriptures in every area than someone who ignores the idea or the concept of Bible prophecy. Because when you see how incredibly well God laid it out for us and how complete the picture is, it just increases your faith in everything else that God said. It's amazing. And so you're going to have more faith in the scriptures. And finally, if you're a watcher, someone who's ready, awaiting, understanding, you're going to bear more fruit in your life because you're going to be looking for and living for the kingdom of God. And so you're going to be more fruitful. And so Paul made it a point while he was with them to make sure that their foundation, part of their foundation, was in the second coming, that they were aware of what was going to happen and that they were ready for it and living in light of it. And it was fruitful. It was productive. Paul says, you don't even need me to write this unto you. 
You already know it, is the idea. And then he says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, the day of the Lord, really for us, has two connotations, two meanings. First of all, the day of the Lord speaks to us of a literal time when these things are going to take place. There is going to be a moment when the trumpet will be heard. When the door is opened in heaven and the voice shouts to us and says, Come up here and I will show you the things which must be hereafter. And that's going to be followed by the signing of the covenant that we'll talk about in a little while. And then the tribulation that takes place, Revelation 6 through 19. And then the second coming of Christ where we come back with him to the earth. And then the setting up of his kingdom. It's going to happen. Paul is saying that the day of the Lord is going to come. But the day of the Lord also has a second and greater meaning or inference than than just that time or day or moment when things begin. The day of the Lord is a phrase that's mentioned 29 times in the Bible. And it doesn't speak of a literal day or 24-hour period of time or even a moment when things kick off and begin. But rather, the day of the Lord speaks of a time that begins with the rapture, the appearing of Christ, but then stretches for a thousand years all the way through the millennial reign of Christ on the earth that's described in Revelation chapter 20. Two times in the Bible, Psalm chapter 90, verse 4. I'm not going to read it, but it'll probably pop up there on the screen. It says that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as a day. And it also says it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. That's the other place where the Bible says it. That with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a single day. And when it talks about the day of the Lord, it's speaking of that millennium, that millennial time. That thousand years where there will be peace and prosperity on the earth, where Jesus is ruling and his people are ruling and reigning with him. That is a time that is yet to be. That's for another Bible study, you know. Now, in the Bible, there is always a pattern of six and one. Number seven is the number of completion in the Bible. Six days, God created the world, and in the seventh, he rested. Six days, man is to work in reflection of that, and on the seventh, he is to rest. For six years, a slave would be bound to his master, but in the seventh, he would go free. Six of labor, one of freedom. Six years they were to sow and to reap from the land. But in the seventh, the land was to remain idle. They were not to sow. They were not to reap. And all throughout the Bible, you have this this cycle of six and one. Six and one. Six and one. The ancient rabbis believed because of this that God's plan, God's work on planet Earth would consist of six days, 6,000 years, of man's toil, man under the burden, the labor of sin, and that it would then be followed by a day or a thousand years of rest. That was the ancient rabbis in old times, the rabbis of antiquity. That's what they believed. And and, and the Bible seems to line up with that pattern, six and one, six and one. Now, interesting for your consideration, if you go through from Christ and you line up the genealogies, finding them throughout the Bible, and and estimate a date 
that Adam lived. Usher did it. He did a great work in, in, in the genealogies. He estimates that the time of Adam's creation was about 4004 B.C. So do the math. 4,000 years from Adam to Christ, 2,000 years from Christ until now. That's how many years? 6,000 years. It puts us right on the cusp of that seventh day. You know, interesting. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 says this. It says that I saw thrones and they that sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And so there is a day coming. The Bible calls it the day of the Lord. Thousand years where there will be peace and prosperity upon the earth. And that's what Paul is referring to here in verse 2 when he says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, in verses 3 through 5 here in chapter 5, He looks at the coming of this day from two different perspectives, two different vantage points. First, he looks at it from the perspective of the world. Those that don't know God, those that don't know his word, his promise, or his ways. And notice what it says about the day of the Lord to those that don't know the Lord. Verse 3. He says, For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail or labor upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. That the day of the Lord is going to come upon them in an unexpected way, in an unexpected time, and for them it will be a time of unparalleled judgment as God pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. It will come for them, and we'll see this later in our study, in a moment when worldwide chaos immediately is brought under perfect peace and prosperity under the ruling and reigning of a one-world ruler that's coming on the scene. But as soon as they say peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them because although things outwardly seem good, although things economically will be prosperous and great for a season, it will be then that the judgment of God will begin to fall upon the planet. And man's utopia that he's been seeking to create for all those years will be interrupted as God begins to rain down wrath upon the Christ-rejecting sinful world. It will come suddenly, destructively upon those that don't know the Lord. However, for those that do know the Lord, for you here tonight that you know Jesus Christ, you've put your faith in him, you've been bought by his blood, you're watching, waiting for his return. For you, it will be a completely different experience. Notice what Paul says in verse 4. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Did you hear what Paul just said? He just said that, yes, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Yes, it will be at a time when we don't know the day or know the hour. But here's what the exhortation of Paul is to them and to you and for me. Here it is, is that we should not be in darkness and it should not be a surprise to us. It should not 
be a thing that we say, oh, wow, the trumpet. I was not expecting that. It should be, yep, perfect, Lord, right on schedule. This everything is lining up just like you said it would, and here it is, and we're ready to go. It should just be, we're ready, walk through. Because it shouldn't be like a thief in the night to the church. We should know the things that are going to happen. Be prepared. Now, if we're going to be prepared, if we're going to heed the exhortation of Paul that he's given to the Thessalonians where he's telling them that we're not of the night, we're not of darkness, we're not the world, that we should be ready, then we must understand the sequence of how things are going to go down. If we don't know the sequence, we're not going to understand. It's like my kids, or if you have kids and you get in the car to go on a long trip. Because they are infantile in their understanding, and because they lack the experience of understanding the journey, what question is constantly on their lips? Yes, the 25-cent question. Are we there yet? You know, every time you ask it, you put a quarter in the jar. You know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Now, I'm in the front seat. My wife's sitting there next to me. We're there, and, and we're not worried about that because we know right where we are. We see the, 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 the familiar signs of the towns or the, you know, cities that we're passing by. We know where we're going. We know where we're headed. We know how long it takes. And so we're, we're just riding along. We just say, nope, 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 nope. We're not there yet. Because we don't know. Well, what, what does the journey look like? What is the sequence of the events uh, of God's plan, really, of what he's prepared, the calendar, if you would, that he has constructed for you and I to look at and to understand so that we might know where we are? And so we want to understand that. We want to look at it. What is the sequence? What's going to happen? Now, I drive my wife nuts because the way I think, and maybe you're like, like me too, but I'm a, I'm a detail-oriented person. I need details. And so I drive her crazy because she'll start telling me a story, and, and I cannot handle not knowing the details. I need to know the details. She'll, she'll, and I'll say, wait, what time was it? You know, what color shirt was he wearing? You know, and I, I mean, if it's fitting, you know, but I just need to know. And then what did you say? Well, how did you get to saying that? What did they say to you? And, and, I, and I just need to see the full picture. I, that's just the way God made me. I've got to see it. And, and that is good for me because here, here's what that caused me to do as a new Christian, as a young believer. I heard someone say the word rapture. I heard someone talk about the last days and it, something, whew, exploded in my mind and i said the what the rap who you know and they said the rapture you know the lord he's going to come take us and i said what did you just say and i said i wh- what kind of church am i in you know you're t- <laughs> is that in the bible well yeah sure it's in the bible just well where matthew 24 <laughs> I, I didn't see it <laughs> you know and, and so so but here's what happened is that you know I, I i got the the word from several different sources that yeah there's a rapture I wanted to know everything the Bible said about it. Every little detail. How does this work? When does the rapture happen? How do we know that that's when the rapture happens? And so I set out on a personal quest to understand because of curiosity, plain curiosity. The problem was I couldn't get straight answers. There was always holes in the story. I would ask and they would, they would answer, but there was still something where, yeah, but I don't, see how this and i could never get it even from the people that really you know seemed like they knew what they were talking about 
So here's what that caused me to do. It caused me to search the scriptures for myself. To look for every single passage I could find that dealt with any area of prophecy and to lay them all out in a way where, okay, I want to see how this fits together. No check engine light. Make this thing work, you know. Fit it together. And so I did that, and, and the result was that God so confirmed it. He did it. He put it together and then and, and in such a beautiful way. And so I want to give that to you in the next 10 minutes. No. <laughs> I'll try, you know. But I do want to give to you the best I can. I know you'll have questions. You know, there, there may be some things. And if I say something that, t- that, that, that maybe doesn't make perfect sense, here's my counsel to you. First of all, I'll talk to you anytime you want. You know, we can discuss it. But if there's something, create a file, a new folder somewhere on the the desktop of your brain that's labeled wait for more information. And just put it in there and just wait. Because as you're reading the word, as you, you know, discuss and conversate, as you see things happen in the world, you'll slowly take things out of that file and put them in the proper place. And you'll understand. You can understand. It's very simple, actually, you know. So where do we begin? Daniel chapter 9. You can turn there in your Bible. And let's take a look at, at, at what happened in Daniel's life that lays for us the groundwork of understanding all that God is going to do. What, what's going to happen in the last days? What's the sequence of events? Now, here's the backdrop. Here's what's going on in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is doing a little bit of personal Bible study. He's having his devotional time. He's reading through the script or the scroll of Jeremiah, the prophet, who was his predecessor, someone who had just passed off the scene just before Daniel came on it. And as he's reading the scroll of Jeremiah, he realizes that he is living in prophetically significant times because he sees that Jeremiah prophesied that the children of Israel would be slaves in Babylon for a period of 70 years. And as Daniel is reading that, he is one of the slaves in Babylon. And so he quickly begins to calculate in his mind how long he's been in Babylon, and he realizes it's been 68 years. So he's living in prophetically significant times. You could say he's living in the last days. The last days of a whole chunk of God's plan, and something's about to happen. And he realizes that. Wow, Lord, you just showed me in the word that I'm living in prophetically significant times. And so Daniel does something very wise. You know what he does? He begins to pray. He goes, he gets on his knees and he begins to pray. He confesses his sin, the sin of the people. He asks God for wisdom, for direction. He asks God, what are you going to do? What is going to happen? And here's here's the result of Daniel's prayer and Bible study. Is that God sends Gabriel, the messenger angel, right to Daniel, and gives to Daniel the most incredible prophecy that we have probably in all of the Bible. Daniel chapter 9 is probably one of the most valuable scriptures that we have in the Bible. Because Daniel read, Daniel prayed, and God answered and sent Gabriel. And so Gabriel comes now to Daniel. And we pick it up in Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. And it says this, and I'm reading from the King James. It will be up on the screen in King Jimmy. It says, and while I was speaking 
and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation or offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Now, let me pause right there for one second. If you are with me so far in our Bible study, raise your hand. Stay with me. Don't drop off here. This is simple stuff, okay? Don't get lost in the language. Just hang on for a moment, all right? And understand the thing. Because, hey, Gabriel gave this to Daniel. Daniel gave it to us. Paul gave it to the Gentile Thessalonians who had only been saved for a couple weeks. This isn't that hard, okay? Don't be intimidated by it. Now, listen. Here's what happens. Gabriel speaks to Daniel, verse 24. Notice. He says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. First thing he says to Daniel is Daniel, 70 weeks are determined upon my people. The word week that is used by the angel Gabriel only appears one other time in the Bible. It is not speaking of a seven-day week. It's a totally different word in the Hebrew. This word that he uses here, week, it's the Hebrew word shabua. Great word, say it. Shabua. You know, it's one of those, like, when you score a perfect basket, you know, that you're, when you're playing with someone, you shabua, you know, I got you, you know, kind of a thing. You know, don't ever forget that word. The only other time it's used in the Bible is Genesis chapter 29, when Jacob is serving Laban for Rachel, his daughter. And they have an agreement that Jacob is going to serve Laban for seven years for Rachel, his daughter. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the story, but basically Laban pulls a Jacob, and he scams him and gives him ugly Leah instead of beautiful Rachel. And so Jacob wakes up in the morning, he looks over at his brand new bride, and it ain't the woman he thought he was supposed to marry. And so Jacob comes out of the tent, and he throws a fit, and Laban says this. He says, listen, fulfill her week. And it's the same word, Shabuah, and it's something in the Hebrew that they called a heptad. And it was a period of seven years. Shabuah. It's a Shabuah. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and, it, and what it is, is it's a period of seven years. They called it a heptad. And so the week that he talks about there in verse 24, Gabriel, it's not a week of days. It's a week of years. It's a period of seven years. So what he's saying is that 70 periods of seven years are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now, if you multiply 70 times seven, it turns out to be 490 years. 
So there's 490 years. That's the chunk of time that we're dealing with here in this prophecy. Now, he goes on to say that these 490 years are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Daniel's people in Daniel's city speak specifically to the Jews. These 490 years concern and deal with Israel exclusively. They are the subject of this time span, Israel. And then he says, the third thing that he tells us in this verse, verse 24, is what will happen in this span of 490 years. He lists these things. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and, listen, to anoint the most holy. These seven things that are listed here in this verse, listen, don't tune out, concern the first and the second coming of Christ. The seven things that he speaks of in this verse are fulfilled in the first and in the second coming of Christ. Not just in the first and not just in the second. In other words, what he's saying is that there is a 490-year clock in which the first coming and the second coming will happen. That's what Gabriel is telling to Daniel. Now, Daniel, like you and I, said, come on, keep it coming, because that's great, but help me understand. So verse 25, Gabriel goes on. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, until... The Messiah, the Prince. Who's that speaking of? Everybody. Jesus. That's right. He's the Messiah. So from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks or seven sevens, 49 years, and 62 weeks, which is a whole bunch more. So (laughs) I forgot what, I, I think it's like 400 and something. Anyway. But listen, here's what he's saying, is that basically 69, what's 62 plus 7? It's 69. 69 out of 70 sevens. So 483 years. Are you with me? Say amen. Everybody, anybody lost? I don't want to ask that because if someone is, I'm going to, you know, have to back up. So you're all with me. I'm saying it by faith, you know. 483 years from, listen, the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah comes. That's a great... Hey, listen, don't you think the Jews should have paid attention to that? I mean, they had Daniel 9. It was right there. They had it all the time. And right there, Gabriel said, it's going to be 483 years from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah comes. Crystal clear, laid out right for them. Now, when did the command go forth to restore and to build Jerusalem? The scripture is Nehemiah chapter 2. The date was March 14th, 445 BC. That's historically, you can look that up on Wikipedia, you know, and you can find that. 445 BC, March 14th, is the day that Artaxerxes Longimanus 
made the command to Nehemiah with a written, signed, sealed decree that he could go back and rebuild Jerusalem. March 14th, 445 BC. That was years after Daniel was given this prophecy. It did not happen in the next couple of days. It was a couple of years after this. So Gabriel's telling Daniel that this is what's going to happen and this is when it's going to start, when the command goes forth. Artaxerxes gives the command they can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. March 14th, 445 BC, the clock begins. Tick, 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 tick. Now, 483 years. That is, in a lunar calendar, which is what the Jews used, 173,880 days. 483 times... 360 equals 173,880. So what the Jews could have done is they could have made one of those cute birthday chains that my kids make when it's their birthday month. You know, 17 days till our birthday, and they, every day they tear off one of those little rings made out of paper, and they, you know, are one day closer to their birthday. Now, this chain that would be 173,880 lengths long, would be 33 miles in span. It would go from Poughkeepsie to Kent, Connecticut. And every day they would tear off a ring. We're one day closer to the coming of Messiah. Next day, tear off another ring. And they would, just, they would ring themselves to the coming of the, of, of the Christ. What happened... 100, oh, by the way, let me just, for clarity's sake, in verse 25, he, he divides the 63 sevens into two segments. He said there'll be seven sevens and then 62 sevens. The reason for that was very simply to answer Daniel's prayer. Daniel's prayer was, Lord, what's going to happen to us? And, and God is interjecting for Daniel, hey, listen, the street, the city, the wall, it's going to be built again. It's going to take 49 years. That's the seven sevens. But then there's going to be 62 more sevens, and then Messiah is going to come. So 69 sevens. 483 years, 173,880 days from March 14th, 445 BC, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come. Now, are you with me? (laughs) What happened 173,880 days after the command went forth to restore and to build Jerusalem? The answer is in Luke chapter 19. Keep a finger in Daniel 9, because we're coming back. And turn quickly to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 brings us to April 6th, 32 AD. The exact span of time that was given by the prophet. The story begins in verse 28. Luke 19, verse 28. It says, And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. Speaking of Jesus. And it says that it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied whereon yet never a man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, because the Lord hath need of them of him. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt or the donkey, they were taking this donkey, the owners thereof said unto them, why loose ye the colt? What do you think you're doing taking our donkey? And they said, the Lord hath need of him. 
Now, I tried this with a guy's motorcycle once. <laughs> you got to be sent by Jesus. No, just kidding. Anyway, and it says in verse 35 that they brought him to Jesus and they cast their garments upon the colt and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Now pause with me for one second. You may recall from reading the Gospels that at every junction where someone wanted to proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah, what did he say to them? Tell no man. Every time, whether it was his apostles that he was with personally, or whether it was someone who was healed from leprosy, or whether it was just a woman who had an uncanny spiritual perception, he would always say, shh, don't say anything. My time is not yet. But now, not only is he sanctioning their words when they say, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord, a messianic proclamation, But he's saying to the Pharisees that that now the Pharisees are saying, shh, you better not say that. Jesus is going one step further and saying, listen, if these should hold their peace, the very stones would cry out. Why? Because, listen, nothing keeps the word of God from being fulfilled. This was the day that was appointed by the Father where Jesus would be presented as the Messiah to the people. 173,880 days after the decree given by Artaxerxes Longimanus to restore and to build Jerusalem. And now Jesus is being presented as their king and nothing will stop God from fulfilling his purposes on planet earth or in your life or in mine. He is victorious in all that he does. Now, Read on. Verse 41. It says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city, and he wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. In other words, he was holding them accountable to Daniel chapter 9. They should have known. They should have been ready. They should have expected that this was the time that he was going to come, but they didn't know the time. And so... Because they didn't know the time, something happens at this part, at this point. He says to them, back up there in uh, verse 42, he says, If you had known the things which belong to your peace, but he says, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Here's what happens. There's a great voice that thunders from the heavens at this time. Not, Not literally, but prophetically. And you know what it says? It says, caught, caught, 
Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about? You ever, you know, seen behind the scenes where they're filming something and, and, and something goes wrong in a scene and the director steps in with the thing and he snaps it and he goes, cut, cut, stop, stop the tape. Here's what happens. The 490 years that were on that clock, the 77s that were given of Daniel, 69 out of 70 pass. 483 years go by and all of a sudden there's a word from heaven. It's cut. You say, wait a minute, where's that in the Bible? Go back to Daniel 9. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, notice what it says there. It says that after three score and two weeks, now that's 49 plus the, the, you know, or seven plus the other 62. So really it's a total of 69 weeks. It says after that, it says, shall Messiah be cut off. The word there in the Hebrew is the word cut. That's it. And you know what it means? It means cut. That's what it means. <laughs> Look it up in the, in the concordance. You know, that's what it means is that there's a, there's a cut. There's something that happens here at this point. And here's what happens is that Israel, this people group whom God is dealing with, whom he's talking about, Israel is taken off of the front burner of God's work on planet earth and it is placed upon the back burner. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. You don't have to turn there. It'll come up on the screen. But let me just read you this verse. Paul says this. He says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. Here it is. That blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. What's that? You see, at that point where Jesus said, Luke 19, he said, now these things are hidden from your eyes. You're going to be laid even with the ground because you didn't know the time of your visitation. Israel was taken, put on the back burner, and God began to do something new. He started a new entity on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says that they were all gathered with one accord in one place, and there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind that filled the house, and Cloven tongues of fire came and sat upon each of their heads, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And that day, 3,000 people were added to the kingdom. And what we know as the church formally started on the day of Pentecost. And for the past 2,000 years, God has been dealing with the church. The church is made up of anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Not necessarily Jewish, not necessarily Gentile, not male or female, Scythian, barbarian, slave or free, but we are all one in Jesus Christ. It's this new entity. The Bible calls it his bride. We are his body. We are not Israel. Neither have we replaced Israel. Israel still exists as its own entity before the Lord. It is on the back burner. He's not done with them but he is not currently dealing with them. We are in the church age. We are the church. The church began on the day of Pentecost, and it ends at the time of the rapture. You see? You understand? So there was a cut in the time period. Right now, that clock that, did, that started on March 14, 445, 483 years out of 490 have passed, but the clock stopped. Now, for you mathematicians... How many years are left on that clock? Seven, right. 490 minus 483 equals seven. There are seven years left. You say, well, what's the deal with those seven? Daniel chapter nine, notice 
verse 27. Here it is. It says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That's a haptad. Shabua, right? For seven. Who is this he? Back in verse 26, we understand. I, I skipped over the second half, not on purpose, but look back right at the second half of verse 26 there. It says that after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Notice that it says there, the people of the prince that shall come. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, historically, we know that that was the Romans. The Romans came in under the leadership of Titus Vespasian. They destroyed the city. They slaughtered a million Jews. They salted the fields. They decimated the nation. They changed the name of it from Israel to Palestine, which was Philistine country. You know, they they made laws making it illegal for Jewish men to talk together, to commune with each other there, you know. The Romans came in, and notice what it says. It says, the people of the prince that shall come. That is the he that's being spoken of there in verse 27. It says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many. This he has many names throughout the Bible. Here he's called the prince that shall come. In other places, he's called the man of sin. In other places, he's called the son of perdition. But the name that you probably know him for, and the most commonly used name for him is what? The Antichrist. The Antichrist does not mean against Christ. It means in place of Christ. That he's a man that the Bible says that he will destroy with peace. That he will win kingdoms with flatteries. His policies will be impeccable. His oratory skills will be matchless. His ability to maneuver and politic and get things done will be unmatched, unprecedented by anything that's ever happened in human history. And here's what this man is going to do right there. It says that he will confirm a covenant that will be seven years in length. And what that covenant is going to do is two things. Well, three things. Number one, is that it's going to bring world chaos into absolute order, stability, and peace in a single instant. That's why, by the way, we are so concerned about what's going on in the Middle East right now. Because, because the, you know, the perfect storm of what's going on in Syria and in Iran and with the world markets and with Russia being involved and Russia's anger at us for putting sanctions on Iran and, and, and all of the financial instability in the world, there's this huge hurricane, and it's not Isaac, you know, that's, that's brewing right now over the world. And, and we are watching that as a church. And the reason is because what we're essentially seeing is chaos developing because here's why antichrist is going to arise out of a situation of total chaos and he's going to bring perfect calm and so chaotic is the scene going to be and so necessary is that peace going to be that even the muslims are going to agree to let the jews build a temple on the temple mount in jerusalem 
That will be part of the covenant, and it's number two that will happen because of this covenant, is that the Jews will finally be allowed to rebuild their temple there in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. We know that because the sacrifice is reinstituted in this very verse. If you read the rest of verse 27, it says that, you know, that, the, that in the middle of the week, he will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. There is no sacrifice and oblation right now. There's no temple. There will be. And it will be Antichrist that will allow that to happen. He will be the one that will bring that forward. Now, that's the second thing. So he will bring chaos into order. He will enable the Jews to rebuild their temple. But here's number three and the most important is that the moment that covenant is signed, the final seven years of man's history begin. The 400, the last seven years of the 490 will begin to count down. And it's a period of time that the Bible calls the tribulation. It will be a time when God pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And it will be the final seven years wherein the second coming of Christ will be the culmination of it and the final things that are listed back up in verse 24, you know, where it ends with to anoint the most holy. And so that's what's coming. Gabriel gives to Daniel the timeline of all of God's prophetic dealings on planet Earth. And we get to look back on it and see that with absolute perfection, God has fulfilled and completed, you know, the things that he desired and said that he was going to do now where are we in relation to this timeline we are in the church age it's this time period where the clock is paused and god is calling those from the highways and the byways whosoever will let him come whosoever will let him come and the church age will end at an event called the rapture and at a time very close to that the covenant will be signed The chaos will explode, and the last seven years will begin. Now, we are exactly halfway through our Bible study tonight. For that reason, we are putting a to-be-continued right here (laughs) because it's time for us to close. But here's what we're going to talk about next week in our time. Here's what it is. How do we know, and, and just here's a teaser, how do we know? scripturally, not by conjecture, not by opinion, but how do we know scripturally? that the rapture of the church happens before the tribulation begins. Because we do come back next week and we'll look at the reasons, what the Bible says. It's so crystal clear, I'm telling you. When you see it, you'll be amazed. And so let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've told us these things ahead of time, that you've laid it out for us. Lord, it causes us to think a little bit, it causes us to stretch out. It causes us to, 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 to work through in our mind and to understand, but yet you've given it to us, Lord. And it's probably on such perfect purpose, Lord, that you made it a little bit tedious. But Lord, how I pray that tonight we would not be as the Jew. You came. You said you were coming. You expected them to be ready and waiting. And you found a people that were unprepared. And how I pray, Lord, that that would not be true of us concerning your second coming. You've told us these things. You've made it abundantly clear, the times and the seasons, what we're to watch for, what we're awaiting. You've put it right in front of our eyes, these things happening, the the rants of world leaders that are thundering forth scripture and they don't even know it. 
And how I pray, Father, that you would awaken us, that we would be alive as your people, that our lamps would be burning, that we wouldn't be asleep like Paul said, but that we would watch and be sober. And so I pray, Lord, between this week and next, that you would crystallize these things in our thoughts and in our mind, that when we come back next week, if we're here next week, oh, Lord, that you would give us perfect understanding and clarity, that we might be those that can watch and wait and be prepared for your return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.